The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. The Read to Lead Podcast, Episode 61. Hi, I'm David Niven, author of It's Not About the Shark, How to Solve Unsolvable Problems. One great tool for problem solving is podcasts like this one. It's the Read to Lead Podcast with my good friend, Jeff Brown. You can find the right amount of pain to drive you to action now and mix it with the right amount of excitement and passion and desire towards where you want to go. Then all of a sudden you have something that not only gives you a giant kickstart in the moment, but something that really lasts. Welcome to the Read to Lead podcast with Jeff Brown. Jeff believes that if you desire to achieve true success in business and in life, then consistent and intentional reading is a must. The Read to Lead podcast will not only help you narrow this ever important reading list, but also bring you key insights and valuable feedback from some of today's most successful and inspiring authors. And now here's Jeff. Hi there. And thank you so much for checking out the show. If this is your first time here, you found the podcast dedicated to your personal and professional growth. Each and every week, we sit down with a successful and inspiring author, and we talk about their latest book and also their thoughts on things like leadership, personal development, career, marketing, business, and entrepreneurship. And in this episode, we sit down with Jarek Robbins, author of the book, Live It, Achieve Success by Living with Purpose. And in this episode, Jarek is going to share with us how to daily build what he calls your emotional rocket fuel, why he believes it's important for you to fall in love with hard work, and the difference between a bucket list and a live it list, and why the distinction between the two is key, and much, much more. Chances are you don't have enough time to read the amount of books you'd like to. That's probably one of the reasons you engage in a podcast like this one. Another way to read more in less time is via our sponsor, Blinkist. They serve up business book summaries in written form that take you about 15 minutes to get through. You can find out more about Blinkist just by going to readtoleadpodcast.com slash Blinkist. You can try it for three days for free. And if you like what you see, you can sign up for a subscription, either a monthly, quarterly, or annual subscription. Right now, there's a 30% discount on an annual subscription when you use the code READ TO LEAD, all one word. Again, that URL is readtoleadpodcast.com slash Blinkist. Jarek Robbins is a decorated performance coach and lifestyle entrepreneur who has applied his innovative methods to living a life of adventure, philanthropy, and entrepreneurship. And at the age of 23, he was awarded the Congressional Award Gold Medal from the United States Congress. And by 25, he gained international renown as the creator of a revolutionary approach to maximizing personal performance that accelerated organizational success for a wide range of businesses. Now, his personal journey has included things like circumnavigating the globe on a ship, helping uh, uh, build schools and houses in multiple countries, cage diving with great white sharks, I don't know about that, encountering silverback gorillas in Rwanda, and working as a volunteer in underdeveloped regions. His new book and the focus of our conversation today is called Live It, Achieve Success by Living with Purpose. 
Jarek, welcome to the Read to Lead podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. I was with you until the whole cave diving with great white sharks thing. I, I'm not going there, but that, well, kudos to you for, for having the guts to do that. It was quite the experience. We were down in South Africa, and it was a place where when we showed up to the uh, loading dock, I guess, where the, the boat was, as we walked in, there were pictures on the wall of great whites literally flying out of the air over the ocean. And I thought it was a joke. I'm like, oh, that's funny. And they go, no, seriously, we caught those probably 20 minutes right over there around the corner in the boat. We were, you know, they, they literally were in a place in the world where great, great whites have learned how to propel themselves out of the water and jump like a dolphin would jump to catch a seal. It's amazing. <laughs> Well, uh, coincidentally, last week's guest is author of a book called It's Not About the Shark, which is sort of a hat tip to some of the uh, uh, struggles that Steven Spielberg experienced while filming the movie Jaws. That movie is single-handedly responsible for why I don't set foot in the ocean. I'm just not going to do that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you you mentioned this early in the book, and, and I thought this would be a great place to start. I wanted to ask, what's the best gift, Jarek, your father ever gave you? I did mention early on, and it was one of the greatest gifts that I think today's generation of young people, and I always get some feedback when I say this, but I think young people are, you know, 50s, 40s, 30s, 20s. Now, I'm not saying if you're over 50, you're old. I'm just saying, (laughs) you know, you're still 50, you're young, you're not even halfway there. And that thought process of young people today are missing the backbone of how to build things on their own and how to have the the urgency and the effort that it takes to really create what you want for your life. And I think it's just a major piece missing because as a young generation, we haven't had to go through really difficult times. So the greatest gift dad ever gave me growing up was he said, you know, I'll help you through school, which is a great privilege that many, many, many people don't have. So I know it's an unreal privilege. Mm -hmm. Then after that, there's one rule when it's going to come to money, and that's don't ask. <laughs> and, you know, at 18, 19, right around there, I remember graduating and going through school and getting done. And even through school, he helped me with my place to stay. He helped me with my tuition, and that was a really big deal. And after that, though, it was really just figuring it out. And it put me in a position where I remember it almost felt like I had it better when I was in school than it did when I graduated. (laughs) (laughs) And I got out and looked at life and said, wow, I'm really going to have to figure this out. And at that point, I remember I was trying to figure out how in the world do you choose what to do? My background was in psychology. That was my degree was in. So there's one route. Um, I loved, you know, the body, fitness, that kind of training stuff. That was another route. Mm. Um, I thought about taking a career based on the skill sets it would help me gain as a young man. So that's a route. Um, all, other friends of mine were graduating saying, hey, the best way to pick a career is who's paying the most. Then <laughs> <laughs> um, the other people were, were going out there saying, okay, you know, I'm going to take a career based on where I get to live and you know, the life I want to experience somewhere in the world. So it was really interesting seeing all the different ways people went about it. Um, but a little later in the book, I, I, I share what happened for me and what changed that caused me to rethink that whole process. And originally, when I made the decision, it was, hey, I'm going to choose a career that gives me the right skill sets, which led me into two years of doing outside door-to-door, face-to-face sales. I've done that. It's about the single toughest thing I think, I, I think I've ever done. Uh, in the first chapter, Jarek lays out what he calls the ideal day vision. Jarek, what's the goal of going through this ideal day exercise? Um, it, it's actually what I had learned after spending two years on the road doing nearly 800 presentations inside of offices. 
Um, I, I learned that a, I wasn't meant to be an outside salesperson for my whole life. <laughs> I love it. It was awesome. And uh, I felt like there was something more for me to be doing. And I remember I moved back to San Diego. There's a really funny story of how I moved back. I, I pretty much for, I planned everything except for where I was going to live. And I didn't realize it until I got on the plane, <laughs> <laughs> uh, landed at 10 o'clock at night and text a friend and was like, Hey, do you guys have any rooms? And uh, I text probably 10, 20 friends and one friend texts back and I ended up moving into the front den of that house. She and three other people were, or two other people were renting and I moved in that night at about 1130 PM. So it was pretty entertaining. Um, but this ideal day is something that I was sitting down and trying to figure out again, what to do next with my life. And I thought about, again, is it about taking a good job with money? Is it about, um, building my resume? Is it about where I want to live? And I, I couldn't figure it out. And I said, you know, why base the next chapter of my life on the job that I need to get? I said, why not design a life and then figure out what jobs fit in it? And I flipped it around. Mm -hmm. And I remember sitting down and I read an exercise by someone that was kind of similar to this. And it said, you know, what if you designed a day? And I changed it. And I changed it to say, you know, what if you designed a day that was so rich, so fulfilling, so abundant that you wouldn't trade anything for it? No amount of money, no amount of power, no amount of fame, nothing would be worth trading for this one day. And I remember thinking about it and being like, well, what would happen on that day? What, what would have to happen on a day of your life to be so rich and fulfilling that you wouldn't want to trade anything for it? <laughs> and I started making a list. And I was like, you know, who would have to be there for me really, really, really not to be willing to trade? Um, you know, what would I have to be doing? What would I be able to, to experience that day? How would I feel? What would be possible? And I just kept going one thing after the next thing after the next thing. And I came up with probably three, four, five pages of this, this what I called my perfect day or my ideal day. And for me at the time, it didn't quite match where I was. Um, mm. it, it was really tricky because I looked around in my life and I had just come off of two years on the road doing sales. Um, in, you know, I had to pay bills. So I had to do something. So I picked up three different jobs. I was coaching for a company that I was really good at and I loved. I was doing life coaching and performance coaching. Um, I was doing inside sales, just working the phones in between calls to make sure I could make extra money to fill in the gaps. And then for hours wise, I needed to qualify for insurance. So I landed up working uh, probably two days a week at a warehouse stuffing boxes. <laughs> and that was not the dream. I remember, you know, sitting in the front end of a house, thinking about what I'm doing every day, Looking at my life, I didn't even have a door. I had two curtains that didn't match. Um, <laughs> bless her, I had a roommate who was depressed for six months that listened to Sex in the City every day on uh, right outside my curtain. <laughs> song stuck in my head. And I looked around at my life. I'm like, this is not the dream. <laughs> and so, you know, the next journey and the next big step became, how in the world am I going to go from this to what I've written down on paper. And my, my vision at the time was to travel the world, to help people, to inspire people, to have the type of job or career that generates revenue by delivering massive value to people's lives and businesses. And then taking that value, taking that income that I've created for myself, using it to take care of my family and the ones I love, and then using the rest of it literally to pay forward and donate and invest in other causes and charities and groups that we really believe in. Uh, later in chapters uh, two and three, you talk about understanding the difference, Jarek, between the majors and, and the minors, the importance of, of focusing on the majors, of course. 
Um, I, I wondered if you could share about your perception that we tend to focus on the minors and how we can begin to transition to focusing on, on the majors. Absolutely. Um, it's something that so many people today don't even realize we're caught up in because it's so easy to get caught in these things we call the minors. And the minors are anything that's distracting you from the most important areas of your life. Anything that's distracting you from your health, anything that's distracting you from your emotions of how you feel every day, anything that's kind of an emotional band-aid that you use because you don't feel good, but you go to this to make you feel better for a few minutes. Um, another example of that is things that are pleasurable but not fulfilling and things that you know give you an emotional high for a few hours or a couple days. And after that, it dies again. And every time you go back, you need more of a hit. Otherwise, it's not as exciting. A simple example, you know, let's say someone started off by learning how to snowboard, and that was exciting to them. But now snowboarding is boring. Unless they're hella boarding in the Swiss Alps, it's not fun. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a silly example. And snowboarding is not a minor. Um, but anything that's a distraction to life, to the main pieces. And, you know, the main pieces – in my eyes, are the foundation that sets up you as a person to be the happiest, healthiest, and most fulfilled version of yourself. Simply put, you know, I would say the majors for most people are your health. If you don't have your health, you don't have anything. <laughs> just, I mean, you can make all the money in the world, have the best relationship, the greatest kids, and if you lose your health, you're done. Um, and I'm pretty sure, uh, there's no guarantees on this, but I'm pretty sure you don't get to take it with you. <laughs> Second, your emotions. Again, uh, it's something I learned from the mentors of mine growing up, but you could have all the money, the best family, the best health, everything, but if emotionally you feel worried, frustrated, angry, and depressed, then that's your life. Mm. You know, the emotions you have are the, is the life you live, and, and that's what it is. Um, so health, emotions. Next, I would say, you know, family, who you spend time with, the, the community you call your family. It might not be blood family for some people. Mm. <laughs> we pointed that out. But whoever you refer to as your family, your closest friends, spending time for them and really being present. Um, and then we go through a handful more of them uh, between your intimate relationship, your professional life, your um, spirituality, your finances, just the main core elements that if you do not pay attention to these, eventually one of them will take you down. And so our thought is set the right foundation by focusing on these areas and figuring out one or two things you could do each day to just make progress in these areas while avoiding the things that distract you from them. Uh, one major distraction for young people nowadays is in a strong gamer culture, video games. I was blown away when I saw the statistic that um, the average young person in a strong gaming society, which is a lot of first world countries right now, mm. Um, they spend up to 10,000 hours playing video games by the time they're 21 years old, which if you read M Malcolm Gladwell's Outliers, yeah. 10,000 hours is the point in which he says you are now, quote unquote, an expert at the topic. <laughs> <laughs> and unless those video games are helping you become healthier, happier, more fulfilled, I'm worried. You do get very strong thumbs. <laughs> uh, but at the same time, I don't see how it benefits your life and makes you feel more fulfilled. It's pleasurable, but it's not fulfilling. Later on in the book, in chapter four, you use a phrase, that, that a concept that caught my attention, and I'd like you to speak on. What do you mean by igniting your emotional rocket fuel? Oh, this is something that's so important. Um, inevitably, people face challenges. Inevitably, people face hard times. Inevitably, you know, life throws you a curveball. And if you haven't learned how to ignite your emotional rocket fuel, that internal fuel that drives you, you're in a lot of trouble. Mm. 
And the other thing we talk about is there, there's different types of fuel. There's the best example. It's a silly example. I don't think we actually mentioned this in the book. We wanted to. It might have snuck in there. I don't remember. Um, but the one example we used is the difference between like a long-lasting fuel and something that's a short kick. And if you're a fan of those movies, The Fast and the Furious, you know mm-hmm. the, the long-lasting fuel would be the gas in the car. Uh, the short kick that can push you and really get you moving, but it's not going to last very long is that little NAS button that he presses when he wants to kick it in and all of a sudden his car takes off in hyperspeed. Um, if you ever played Mario Kart, as silly as that sounds, but I'm young, <laughs> uh, it's driving over those white little arrows that boost you out into the raceway. And that thought process of you can use pain as a booster, but if your whole life is driven by pain, eventually it's going to die out just like that NAS would, just like that booster would. Mm. Meaning it can push you so far, but eventually it actually starts to tear you apart. Versus um, when you can find the right amount of pain to drive you to action now and mix it with the right amount of excitement and passion and desire towards where you want to go, then all of a sudden you have something that not only gives you a giant kickstart in the moment, but something that really lasts and can continue to pull you through life challenges and through the ups and downs and lefts and rights and peaks and valleys to that result you're really looking for. Jared, what would be some of the roadblocks that we can expect to run into when attempting to ignite our emotional rocket fuel, as it were? Oh, man. Um, Fear is a huge one. And I, I, I remember I was talking to someone earlier today and they have this beautiful plan of what they want to achieve with their life and they know exactly what they're going to do and they're such an analytical person. They've, they've literally mapped it out. They know everything that's going to do, how it's going to work, how it's going to affect them. They've done the research. They're so excited and I asked them today, I'm like, great, you've been talking about this plan for like two months. How much time per day are you using living your plan? And there was just a long silence. I said, what's going on? And he goes, I don't know. It freaks me out. I said, what do you mean? And he's like, well, I'm scared. And I'm like, what are you scared about? He's like, well, what if it doesn't work? He's like, this is my only plan I have. I'm kind of excited just talking about the plan. <laughs> and he's like, worse, what if it does work? Now, now everything's going to change in my life and it's going to be all different. And I don't know what to expect then. And I, I haven't planned for that. And it was so funny. So fear is something that definitely pops up along the way for just about everybody. And the fastest way to break through your fear, obviously, is to build enough emotional fuel by stacking the, the painful things that will happen if you don't take action now, the pleasurable things that will happen if you do take action now, and you got to keep stacking. You know, pain, 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 pleasure, 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 pain, 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 pleasure, pleasure, pleasure. And the question people always ask is, well, how much do I have to stack? <laughs> the answer is simple. Until you find yourself unable to not take action, meaning – When you're sitting still and you're thinking about what you want to do and you start stacking emotional pain and pleasure, when you get to a point where literally you stand up and you're like, I can't take it anymore, and you go do something, you've now hit threshold and you've gotten yourself into action. (laughs) You've ignited that fuel. Um, So certainly fear is something, and it's a big one. The story we use in this is a beautiful example of a young woman who's just been recognized as the, I think she's the youngest Nobel Peace Prize winner. Um, but Malala, and we use her as an example of someone who certainly had so much passion towards what she believes in and, you know, educational rights for everyone. She has so much passion and she has so much pain towards seeing people in her own community not have access to this. And 
And it drives her and it drove her to the point where I don't know if people listening know her story, but she was put on a list of people that the Taliban were not excited about. And they hunted her down Mm. and someone literally shot her in the face and the bullet landed up going down her shoulder and they found it somewhere down in her shoulder. But could you imagine how much fuel you would have to build up to be able to stare death in the face like that and continue to work for the cause you believe in? And I use that as a testament and an example to saying this young woman is stacked up so much pain to not taking action, so much pleasure in taking action. She's willing to continue moving forward even when someone's trying to physically and literally kill her. It's amazing. Um, another example we always say is this is just a strategy of how to go about it. But many people like to choose the easy things first. You know, they get the low hanging fruit mm. and then they land up having a lot of hard work in front of them. And we always say flip that around. If you're willing to do the hard stuff first, everything else will seem easy. Uh, It's part of what led me to learning how to do face-to-face, door-to-door, office-to-office sales first. Because I figured that's the hardest thing on the list of what I had in front of me. And if I learn how to do that first, everything else will seem really easy. (laughs) Well, to that end, Jarek, why is it important in your eyes that we fall in love with hard work? I I, I particularly appreciated uh, your journey in sort of figuring that out for yourself. Absolutely. It's something, again, for young people nowadays, 50 or younger, um, we live in a generation where the generation before us wanted so much for us. I mean, you know, they lived through a Great Depression. They lived through so many difficult times in their life where they saw resources very scarce and limited. And so, you know, if you talk to my grandparents or great grandparents, they always said stuff like, you know, I always wanted to work extra hard to make sure you could get a good education, you could have a good life, you could experience the best of what's out there. And I remember hearing stories of my grandfather working five jobs at a time to put food on the table and make sure all the kids had the nicest clothes. And when you hear stuff like that, it's amazing and very, very, very incredible to hear about. Yet, now when you talk to people in their 40s, 40s, 30s, you start to hear stories where someone's you know, 46 years old and still counting on mom and dad to pay the phone bill every month. <laughs> and it's like, wow, what's missing there? And in my eyes, it's the ability to fall in love with hard work. Now, whenever I say that, there's always feedback from people going, I know how to work hard. What is this, another speech about just work hard? That's not what it's about. And I have some insight, and my opinion is that in today's society, society young people, they certainly know how to work hard at the things they enjoy doing. Now, the things they do not enjoy, they tend to avoid like the plague. (laughs) And they come up with all kinds of cool ways to handle them. Number one, ignore them. (laughs) Number two, two, avoid them. Number three, which is probably the favorite, outsource them. (laughs) Hire someone else to do it for you. And what this chapter is really about is speaking to the core message that at some point in your life, you're going to be faced with hard work that you don't necessarily love to do. And if your whole life you spend running from it, you're going to be faced with some pretty difficult times later in life. You know, when it comes to quote unquote retirement age, if that even exists anymore, (laughs) um, you're going to be looking back being like, dang, I wish I would have worked a little harder. I wish I would have saved a little more. I wish I would have done that stuff I avoided for so many years that now freaks me out. And that's the only option I have left. Mm. And the way I felt, you know, the way I learned this was really simple. Um, I got challenged by dad to go and figure out what hard work was really about. And I have some step family up in Canada who offered to have me up for the summer and to put me to work at the, the lumber yard that was right next to the house up there. And so literally I got up there, 
And they put me to work. They said, you have to get to the side of the freeway by 6 a.m. A van of workers is going to pick you up. Um, you're going to stack lumber all day, come back home, um, and then go to bed, do it again six days a week. And <laughs> I remember on day one, I tell a pretty inter- entertaining story that shows I was certainly not prepared for this job. And <laughs> um, what ended up happening is that I, something that ticked me off was I, on my way back downstairs after a family discussion, I, I heard my family literally taking bets on how many days they thought I would last. <laughs> I love this part. <laughs> and I remember getting so frustrated just at a pure like that guy part of you that's I'm going to prove it. So I started waking up. Instead of waking up and getting the side of the freeway at 6, I woke up at 4.30 in the morning. I lifted weights for a half hour, ran for a half hour, got ready, ate breakfast, got to the side of the freeway, went to the lumber yard, stacked lumber all day, then came home, went right back to the gym, lifted weights, ran for another half hour, ate dinner, went to bed, did it again six days a week. And in the beginning, you know, I was bent to prove to everybody how tough and strong and how much endurance I had in the house, you know, I could outdo everyone and do way more than they thought. And about halfway through, that fuel of trying to prove someone wrong went away. And it was replaced by some really interesting thoughts and emotions that started flooding my mind. And it's something that I see that's very common to people who are, again, younger in the workplace. And their thoughts of entitlement. I remember walking around the lumberyard at one point, hearing myself thinking, I'm better than this. Mm. Why am I doing a job that I'm better than? And hearing a thought of, you know, I'm more educated than this. I have a degree. I should be getting paid more than this. Uh, It was working for family, so I wasn't getting paid. (laughs) (laughs) Still, you know, and then I started looking at the other team members I was working with. And some of these people were amazing. There was one gentleman that had literally been stacking lumber for his entire life. And literally, he was 98 years old. And he literally stacked lumber in Dubai in 110-degree weather. He stacked lumber in Canada in negative-degree weather. And this man was amazing. But I remember even looking across and saying, you know, why doesn't he respect me more? And thinking these thoughts. And about a day and a half later, that's how long I let him go. And a day and a half later, I had a heart-to-heart, face-to-face conversation with myself in the mirror. And I remember just questioning and challenging myself and saying, you know, who do you think you are? (laughs) Life owes you something? Please. You know? Yeah, because I, what, for what reason? Because I showed up, life owes me something. And I started challenging every one of these thoughts and I started turning them around. I say, you know what? Life owes me nothing. If I have a breath in my lungs, it's my responsibility and duty to give every ounce of who I am as a human being to life. These people that I work with, they shouldn't respect me for what? If I want to be valuable in their eyes, I need to add more value than anyone else here does. You know, I should be getting paid more. No, I should be giving more. Mm. I want to be the most valuable person on the team. I want to be a leader, someone who's considered someone that people look up to here. I have to give more than anyone else is willing to give to this opportunity and this job and this moment to prove that I can really help the team grow. And as I turned these thoughts around, everything started to change for me. It now became exciting. Uh, The other thing I changed besides my own perception is my procedure, how I physically went about the work. Um, I tried to figure out, you know, what's something that I really love to do? And I love working out. Obviously, I was working out you know, <laughs> morning at night, all day. And so I, I mentally turned this lumber yard into my gym. I looked around and I said, you know, that board, when I picked that up, is like a curl. This one's kind of like a shrug. This one's kind of like a squat. This one's a lunge. And I came up with all different exercises I could do as I was moving and lifting all the different boards. And, and it helped me really transition from literally – doing it out of pure rage to prove a point to not loving it at all and almost wanting to quit. But I wouldn't allow myself to quit because 
just not my nature. And then third, figuring out a way to fall in love with it, not endure it, you know, not survive it and fall in love with it. And I, I think it's a beautiful example that people today can use in their life if they ever find themselves in a position where they have to do that hard work because it's necessary to get the results they really want. It's a great tactic and tool to apply in your life. And you began to engage your brain in other ways and all that too, didn't you? From recognizing the, the, the beauty around you to listening to audiobooks and, and things of that nature, as I recall. Absolutely. It was a really important distinction as well. I looked around and I was in Canada and I realized it was beautiful. <laughs> you know, the countryside in Canada is quite amazing, especially British Columbia in the summer. And I looked around and noticed that. And the other thing that I started to notice is one thing I was struggling with is no one else really spoke English on the team I was working with. And I was like, oh man, this is interesting. Cause I was with myself all day thought wise and after I battled away those, you know, entitlement thoughts and really got to a centered place, I started looking for ways to feed my mind, mm. not just my, you know, as well as my emotions that I was doing. And so I literally took every penny I had at the time, which was only a few hundred dollars, <laughs> and I, I bought every audiobook I could afford, and I downloaded all of them on this little iPod I had, and I started listening to them nonstop throughout the day. And you know, from A Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl, um, Rich Dad Poor Dad. Uh, all different types of programs on all kinds of subjects. And I was filling my mind with great content. So hopefully that by the time I was done, it was one of the best physical, you know, growth experiences of my life, but it was also one of the best mental and emotional and personal growth parts of my life as well. Well, when it comes to doing anything worth doing, you say that we're likely to run into one or more of, of three different, I think it's opponents that you call it. Can you describe the three, Jarek, and, and how to best overcome them? Absolutely. Inevitably in life, when you want to go do something, whether how big or how small it is, doesn't really matter. Um, but when you want to try something new or go experience what, what's out there in the world, you're going to get faced with opponents. And the three opponents we always refer as the outside opponents, the intimate opponents, and the internal opponents. And these opponents just represent people at different levels. And you know, the outside opponents really simply are the people who you've crossed paths with, you're friends with, you might work with, a colleague, a friend, somebody you have you know, coffee or lunch with from time to time, someone who knows you but's not really that intimately or deeply connected to you. And these opponents, they're people who just see your life and you tell them what you're doing and you tell them your plans and it doesn't quite match up with their model of the world or their viewpoint. And so the feedback they tend to give you is just saying, hey, you know, that kind of sounds silly. Like, you know, aren't you, in my case, I said, listen, I'm going to go volunteer in Africa. And I remember these outside opponents, you know, random friends from school were just looked at me and they're like, well, don't, aren't there other people who can do that? Don't you want to finish your degree? <laughs> don't you want to like get stuff done here? And they just explained to me their model of the world of what they thought they were supposed to do before they could go do something like that. Mm. And, and it was interesting. So they kind of gave me a little bit of resistance, which made me just rethink my plan. Uh, the second level opponents is the, the intimate opponents, the people who know you really well. <laughs> uh, this is your significant other, your husband, your wife, your spouse, your, your kids, your mom or dad. These are the people who know your soft spots and they know what buttons to push. And so in this circumstance, you know, you tell them like, oh my God, I've got this great idea and I'm going to go do this. And they look at you and they fold their arms and they go, okay, sounds good. <laughs> How'd that work out last time you tried? It's like, oh, man, why'd you have to go there? And it literally feels like they just kick you in the gut on purpose. And, you know, it's out of, it's out of the best intent usually 
not always, but usually it's out of the best intent that they want you to succeed and they don't want you to go through the same challenge or pain or frustration you went through before. So they're trying to help you, but they're doing it again based on their model of the world and their map of how things are supposed to work. They're not really looking through it, your perception. They're just trying to protect you through their perception. The final obstacle, which is the hardest, the final opponent you face, uh, it's the internal opponent. And this is that day when you know you figured out a way to make it work. You figured out how to go kick butt. You figured out how to really make progress and own your results. And you're moving forward. You're making progress. You have momentum on your side. And then one day you look in the mirror and say, do I really think it's going to work? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, what if it doesn't? And you start to question yourself and question what you're even up to. And, and it's really interesting. So you get stuck in that moment. And it, it's such a fascinating moment that people face that they don't realize when it happens, you just have to go to what we call your personal truth. It's a simple acronym we created and it's truth. So T-R-U-T-H. And the T stands for you must have a clear and defined trajectory. Your ideal day vision works great for this. So you have to have a vision of where you're going, your trajectory of where you're headed. Uh, the R you have to be willing to rebuke the naysayers, renounce their doubts, and be relentless in your approach. You have to push away anyone who's doubting you, get them out of the way, and you have to be relentless. Uh, one of my favorite stories in the world is if you ever listen to the speaker, Les Brown, he has a video on YouTube. If you Google Les Brown, you have to be hungry or you got to be hungry. It's this relentless approach of him going after a job he really wanted the man is relentless. <laughs> uh, but you have to be relentless if you really want to break through those opponents that are standing in your way. The you, you have to be unconventional with your strategies, unified in your internal thoughts and beliefs, and unassailable. You can't allow anything to hold you back or slow you down. You have to just keep going. The T, uh, you'll need a massive amount of tenacity to ensure that you will be able to take the punches and continue to make progress no matter what life tosses your way. And the H, You'll need to create a place you can go each day to refuel. Use your daily habits to create your mental, emotional, and physical safe haven. This will help you feel like the world is in total harmony. And that last piece is probably one of the most important parts of creating a space for yourself every day that allows you to recenter, refuel, and rebuild who you are from the inside out so that no matter what life throws at you, you are almost, you know, you almost have an emotional force field of great energy pushing out because you've refueled yourself every day. Mm. Well, Jarek suggests later in the book developing what he calls a, a live it list as opposed to, say, a bucket list. What's the difference, Jarek, and, and why is a live it list the better option? Oh, man. So this came out of a little <laughs> frustration in my life. Um, and the frustration was I, I saw the movie, I read, you know, I heard about a bucket list. I thought it was such a cool idea. So I wrote my whole bucket list out of everything I wanted to do. And I remember having this bucket list and being so excited about it. And then at one point while volunteering over in Uganda, literally lying in a hospital bed, being told I had five days left to live. I looked at my bucket list and I was really ticked off <laughs> and I was mad because I'm like, Hey, that's not how it works. Like you're supposed to do all this stuff before you kick the bucket. <laughs> and I remember just being challenged and upset and frustrated and thinking like someone should have given me better advice with this whole list thing. Cause I have it, but how much of it I really done. Mm. And yes, I had done a lot of things at that point in my life. I, you know, climbed the great wall, saw the Taj Mahal, Shark dive with great, you know, with the great whites, river rafted down the Nile. I had all kinds of cool stuff to check off, and there was still so many more really, really important ones. 
like get married, you know, have a family, get a house, um, you know, have kids, (laughs) really important ones. (laughs) And those weren't checked off. And I remember kind of scratching my head and realizing, A, no one can tell you when it's going to happen, when that day is going to show up that's going to say, hey, this is your last one, pal. And the live it list is my adaptation to the bucket list, which is saying, listen, instead of just having a list that sits somewhere and collects dust, take that list and start assigning deadlines. And the example we give is like running a marathon. You know, the the bucket is the the final finish line at the marathon, but you got to start setting some dates and times that's going to represent every mile of that 26.2 miles. So what's mile one going to be in the next two years? What are the absolute pieces you will check off your bucket list no matter what? Next, you know, three years, what, what's the absolute list? And what happens is you want to make sure that you focus on the most important ones first. That way along the journey, if you were to hit that day and get told you have five days left to live, you'd be really proud. <laughs> you'd be like, hey, <laughs> I did it. I lived it. I got this. Like, you can take me any day. I'm ready to go. <laughs> and it's just a different approach at it. Well, I've got a, a couple of questions I want to touch on, uh, Jarek, uh, not directly related to the book. But before I do that, I wanted to ask if there's anything else from the book you want to make sure we know about. Um, the really important thing that really stands out to me is this book was set up as a tool for people. It's not just a, something to read. It literally has challenges set up that guide you along the journey to make sure that you literally apply and take action with everything we cover. Uh, to give you the simplest overview of the whole book itself, It starts off with chapter one, teaching you how to design your absolute ideal day. Chapters two through 11 teaches you how to turn that day into reality. And chapter 12 says, you know, once you've learned how to turn the day into reality, why not magnify that one day in the next five, 10 and 20 year vision for your life? And it's really a guide that people can come back to year after year and use to reset their plan, reorganize their vision and really have the tools to hold themselves accountable to make it real. Well, I've had a chance to, to hear you speak publicly. I know you do a ton of public speaking, Jarek, and, and we believe here at the podcast that you really need to be able to leverage the ability to effectively share your ideas in public if you want to be successful. So I'm curious to know, what's your approach to public speaking, generally speaking? What's your goal, in other words, when you prepare a talk? Oh, I learned this from my dad and he's recognized as a really well-known public speaker, if not one of the top ones out there still. And the number one thing he taught me whenever speaking is a few things. Number one, always do your homework. You want to know more about who you're speaking with than they know about themselves. And that sounds silly or it might sound extreme, but you really do. And purely out of respect for that person. You want to know everything about them. So as you talk to them, they can feel the fact that you actually know who they are and you care. And beyond that, when I'm preparing my talk, what I do is I literally, I'm I'm drafting a new set of questions right now and it's probably going to be 30, 40 questions long for any event that hires us. We go through all of these questions with them and we want to know, you know, what are their fears? What are they excited about? Just as much as, you know, what are the most painful problems in their life right now? Mm. Just as much as what do they read about? What are they interested in? Where do they spend their free time? Um, everything. And as much as we can get to know about those people, then our main outcome is saying, okay, if this is who they are and this is what they're trying to achieve and experience in their life and this is what's challenging them, what can we offer out of what we know best to help them achieve that result and get that experience they desire most in their life and business. And so that's our main outcome is really truly to not to understand our audience so well 
that our goal is to craft everything we have available as far as tools or topics or resources or assets to really, really, really meet their needs at the most effective level. Well, from your volunteer work to uh, your public speaking to now your writing, you've had uh, the chance to impact a lot of people. Jarek, at the end of the day, what do you hope your legacy to be? It's simple. We, we sum it up. I, I hope my ripple of learn it, live it, give it ripples out into the world and helps more people than I could ever imagine. And learn it, live it, give it really simple is, you know, learn what it takes to turn your ideal day vision into reality. Live it so ferociously and so fully that you don't have to tell anyone what you're doing. They can see it and pay it forward. You know, take what works for you and share it with everyone around you to hopefully help inspire and ignite that fuel within them to go turn their ideal vision into reality. I think if more people do that, uh, there'll be more people hitting the point where all of their needs, all of their desires are fulfilled. And in turn, they'll start then figuring out how to help more people who really need the help around them. That's my goal. That's my ripple I hope I put into the universe. Awesome. Well, can you name for us a couple of books, Jarek, you've read or maybe you're currently reading that have impacted you? And, and if you could, share how or why they've impacted you as they have. Oh, lots of them. One of my all-time favorite books was The Alchemist. Mm-hmm. And it, I read it when I was just finishing up college and I was going on a big part of this journey. And it was so relatable because literally I was going on my own journey around the world (laughs) and searching for who I was and what I was about and how life was going to be. And as I was doing all that, reading that book, it was so fascinating to realize that everything was right back at home. And, you know, when you have everything in the world, but you have no one to share it with, it's not worth much. But when you find that right person to share it with, And I'm very lucky to have found my wife. But when you find that right person to share it with, everything becomes so much richer. Well, finally, Jarek, what's next on the horizon for you? What are you working on now that you're excited about and can share? Um, The most exciting piece we're working on right now is spreading the word about the book. It just came out. It's really doing well. And our, our main focus and what we're most excited about is helping spread that around the world. I know there's been a few thousand copies that have gone out so far, at least that we've seen accounted for. And it's beautiful. We've had people everywhere from Buenos Aires to Tokyo to Thailand reading it. And it's amazing to hear the difference it's making in people's lives. Um, The other thing we do that I'm really excited about is once a year we host a retreat where we take people and mix adventure, personal development, travel, and philanthropy all together. And we call that a rapid results retreat. And I'm always thrilled to take people on that journey something that affected me so deeply when I went around the world and saw what was really out there and got to experience it. And it's one of my favorite things in the world, my wife as well, that we love to do by taking people with us to go experience everything that's out there in the world. Well, I want to give a special shout out to Clark Buckner of the Technology Advice Podcast for introducing Jarek and I. Uh, Jarek, thank you so much uh, for taking time to be here. We really appreciate having you on the show and wish you nothing but continued success. Uh, thank you so much for having me. If you would like to connect with Jarek or check out that Les Brown video or Rapid Results Retreat he talked about, of course, find out more about his book. You can get all of that and more at the show notes page we created just for this episode. It's essentially a blog post dedicated to this specific episode, and you'll find it at readtoleadpodcast.com slash 061 for episode 61. 
please remember our sponsor, Blinkist. To find out more about them, read to leadpodcast.com slash Blinkist. And remember the discount code READ to LEAD should you choose to dive into an annual subscription to Blinkist. That gets you 30% off, by the way. Thank you very, very much to the plethora of five-star ratings and reviews that have come in in the last few days. In fact, so many, we don't have time to get to them all during this episode. We'll have to spread them out over the next uh, week or two. I found out recently that an entrepreneurship professor at a university in California has added the Read to Lead podcast as part of the entrepreneurship curriculum, which I just think is awesome. Part of that assignment included rating and reviewing the podcast in many of those, as I mentioned, have now come in. I want to say thanks to Guy B987 for his five-star review. Kaminsky G with a five-star rating. We appreciate that very much. It's me, Karen, since it's on fire with five stars. Also, Matt, thank you for your five-star review. A Dub Bizzle with five stars. Janet Ortiz Arango with a five-star rating. Also, NNEBC with five stars. Eric Guyan says it's five-star worthy as does Gabby G 22 Just a few of those coming in this past week. If you'd like to leave a rating and a written review, you can do that a couple of ways. One is via iTunes, one via Stitcher, readtoleadpodcast.com slash iTunes, or readtoleadpodcast.com slash Stitcher. That's going to do it for this week. I look forward to seeing you next time on the Read to Lead podcast. Thanks so much for listening to the Read to Lead podcast. As a subscriber, we challenge you to be more than just a passive listener. Become a vital member of the community. Visit us on the web at readtoleadpodcast.com. Until next time, remember, leaders read and readers lead. My little brother's friends have been camped out at our place for two days straight. Three. It's because of the Xfinity 10G network. Internet that can handle a house full of screens at once with, like, basically no interruptions. And it's only getting faster. When I was their age, internet like this was a pipe dream. You sound like my grandpa. Please go home. Introducing the next generation 10G network, only from Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas.